Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is bigamateurism.com. I also can be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all of those places. I also have a blog that you can check out if you'd like and the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you'd like to reach out to me, please feel free to do so. You can do that at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right, today is July 11th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to talk about this new wave of conference realignment. If it turns out to be a wave, I, I think there are going to be some more dominoes to fall here. But it's impossible to predict. There's been so much speculation, and this is a great storyline for the sports media, and they are just uh, having all kinds of fun with it. But I'm trying to stay out of that speculation market and look at this at a structural level and at a big picture level, what it says about the values of higher education. And that ties back into what I talked about in this last episode and this movement towards hiring people out of the entertainment industry to sit in the most important captain's chairs in college sports, both in the financial markets of big-time college sports, the financial structure, and also the regulatory structure and regulatory model. And those two things are really inseparable. You can't look at the business of big-time college sports without looking at how it is regulated, and more importantly, who gets to decide. And that fundamental question, who gets to decide what college sports looks like, what the financial model looks like, what the regulatory model looks like, and who has the authority to make changes in either of those models, it is a, such a fundamental point in this discussion. And it's really one of the most central points that I built this podcast around. And the NCAA and Power Five's positioning in Congress and federal court with respect to state legislatures, with administrative pathways to employee status, and all of those external challenges to the central question of who gets to decide. The NCAA and Power Five are fighting like hell to make sure that it is the the people who are benefiting most from the system, and those are the in-system stakeholders. And you've had this almost warlike environment in the way that the Power Five and, and the NCAA have been fighting to keep control over who gets to decide. They will fight to the death to make damn sure that they get to sit in the decision-making chairs and that no external regulatory authority is going to tell them what to do or how to do it. And when you see what's playing out with this conference realignment and the kind of money that people are talking in terms of what these super conferences might be worth, and again, none of them have included in that discussion the sports betting market that, that's on its way, that, that's inevitable. You're looking at potential revenue streams that are breathtaking. And these schools and these conferences, they simply can't 
help themselves. They are so addicted to the money. They are so addicted to the exposure. They are so addicted to the branding and marketing opportunities that they get through their relationships with these broadcast media partners that they simply can't say no. And in their blind, rapacious pursuit of superiority and 24-7 marketing and branding, and money, 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 they have simply dispensed with any discussion of the values that they claim to hold and the values of intercollegiate athletics and the connection between the big-time college sports uh, products, football, men's basketball, and the academic mission of of their institutions. That's simply irrelevant. And and what I think is different about this realignment is that the decision-makers aren't even going through the motions of trying to look at this through the lens of the values of higher education. As we have more and more decision makers, conference commissioners, and then university level administrators who see the world solely through the eyes of the entertainment industry or the broadcast media industry, then values-based discussions are gonna become increasingly rare. So what we have right now is just an open game of get what you can while you can, and there are no rules. There's no integrity to this process. There's no respect for the existing conference structure or the existing historical relationships that were originally built on geography and common interests, both athletically and academically. These decision makers just toss that out the window because they don't give a damn about that. They give a damn about the next dollar and the next broadcast media deal. And these university presidents that are having these secret meetings to raid other conferences, there's no discussion about how this aligns with the values of higher education. It's just go for the branding, go for the money, go for the appearance of of power and prestige. And they don't want to be left out. They want to be associated with the most powerful brands. And that is clearly the SEC and the Big Ten right now. And these university presidents don't give a damn about collegiality or respecting the agreements that these other conferences have and the tradition and history of those conferences. They have the long knives out, and they will employ them against anybody in the big-time football marketplace if they think it will help them gain a competitive advantage in the marketplace and access to more and more broadcast media revenue and other revenue streams. So screw the values. And this is an inflection point in my judgment where people who have been defending the status quo, I believe, have to take an honest look at this next round of realignment. What's happened already, both uh, the SEC poaching Texas and Oklahoma and then the Big Ten poaching UCLA and USC, the uh, status quo cheerleaders. And a lot of this cheerleading is very subtle, but here I'm, I'm not just talking about people at the institutional level. I'm talking about the commentariat, and I'm talking about the sports media, and I'm talking about these advocacy groups, and I'm talking about these law professors that, if you pay attention carefully, are really more comfortable advocating uh, status quo talking points than they are athletes' rights talking points. And they, they'll say that they're neutral. I don't think they're neutral. And of course, they come out of the institutional setting. And I, I listen to a, a lot of their stuff and the go-to law professors and, and, and 
experts and people who are in the industry, who are in the business in, in one way or another, they, I think, now have to concede that these decisions don't have a damn thing to do about the values of higher education that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have been propagandizing really since the 1950s in this amateur professional dilemma where they insist on the most professionalized product behind the scenes, yet to the outside world, they're so embarrassed about what they're actually doing, they preen and pose and prance around like a peacock talking about amateurism and the student-athlete and the integrity of higher education and all this happy malarkey. Can we just put that away? Can we just acknowledge, all of us, that there is no evidence in this existing market that these institutional stakeholders care about anything but money branding, marketing, and market share. So let me just talk a little more specifically about this round of conference realignment and make some observations. First of all, the motivations really aren't that much different from the first round of conference realignment. And I just want to note that I talked about that in a bit of detail in episode 42, Deja Vu All Over Again for Southern Football. And it's so, so important to understand the history. And I'm just going to, again, identify some essential resources. I I think they're essential, and they've been really helpful in uh, what I've been doing to help me understand really the the motivations of the big-time powerful football product. And again, this is a football show, and it has always been a football show, and that goes back to the earliest iterations of college football and then the mainstreaming of it in the early 20th century and the Carnegie Report's response to that influence. And then the technology is so important and the television era changed everything. And uh, among these uh, resources is a 2001 book by Ronald Smith, and I've talked quite a bit about him and and his influence on on how I think about the history and and values of college sports. And uh, he's the author of that 1988 book, Sports and Freedom, which I think is also an essential read. But in 2001, he wrote a book uh, titled Play by Play, subtitled Radio, Television, and Big Time College Sport. And he walks through the connection between the technology that developed that allowed college sports to be expressed to the outside world world and then mainstreamed in modern American culture. And he walks through the history of the radio and then television eras and the influence those technologies had on the evolution of college sports. And he does something that I really like, and he's done this in a couple of other books. He does a timeline at the end of the book that really identifies these important milestones. And this one, his timeline in play-by-play is very detailed. It's really interesting because these timelines tell a story. And one of the things about them is that you can see how some of the same issues come up again and again and again over the years. And one of those things in this timeline is the influence of and importance of antitrust issues and antitrust litigation. But the very first entry in the timeline inspired the title of this episode, Realignment 2.0, What Hath God Wrought? It comes from May 24th of 1844. A lot of people are familiar with this, but those are the first words that Samuel Morse transmitted in the first public communication of the telegraph in the United States. And uh, Morse's quote is from the Bible. It's from the Old Testament, the book of Numbers. And with apologies to our biblical scholars who may quibble with the way that I've used that quote, there could not be a better way to describe the absurdity and hypocrisy that is occurring right now with this 
new round of conference realignment. And perhaps a more fitting quote would be, what hath higher education and university presidents wrought? And this beast that is driven by greed and arrogance and pride and uh, self-interest is the creation of the very institutions of higher education that claim that they are in the business of educating student athletes. How in the world can you be in that business? Claim that with a straight face. When you have just permitted, if you're the Big Ten and the Big Ten presidents, you've just permitted your footprint to expand in a way that has athletes being forced to spend even more time in planes and in airports and in hotels. And who knows what the travel schedule is going to look like. Do you add an extra day to the travel schedule? I think most conferences get their travel schedule down to a fine art in terms of getting to and from venues, particularly the ones that are far away. So this is a whole new ballgame because one of the consequences of this round of realignment is that the geographical footprint means nothing now. It means absolutely nothing. But to, to understand what's happening right now, you have to understand the television era. And so we have Play by Play. That's a good book. And then I've talked quite a bit in other episodes about the Keith Donovan book that came out in 2004. It's titled The 50-Year Seduction. And he talks about the television era and the influence that television has had on college sports. And of course, again, it's the story of uh, big-time football because that's really what matters here. And Donovan talks a little bit about big-time men's basketball, as does Smith. Smith has a short chapter devoted to the impact of all of these football-driven interests on the big-time basketball product. But this, is again, is a football show, and it always has been. So you have Donovan's book, and he is a good storyteller. And one of the reasons I like that book is it's very readable. It's, it's full of details. And one of the things I took away from Donovan's book is that when you really look at the truth of the business of big-time college sports, it's not about the athletes. It's about the TV executives and the broadcast media deals and how those deals are put together, what the thinking is behind them. And it is all about the dollar, the almighty dollar. And there's no other conclusion that you can reach when you look at the influence behind the scenes of the entertainment industry and the broadcast media industry. And again, that's now out of the shadows and into the light with uh, this new round of conference realignment and the new hiring criteria for the decision makers in college sports. So that Donovan book is a must read. And then the third essential read to understand the history of the, the interests that are driving this new round of realignment is Walter Byers' book, his 1995, uh, I view it as a kind of a tell-all book, a bit of an expose. There's an autobiographical component to it, but it's called Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Exploiting College Athletes. And remember, Walter Byers was the first CEO of the NCAA, and he took that position in 1951, and he held it until 19. 1987, 36 years, the longest serving NCAA president in history. And in many ways, Walter Byers uh, was the architect of the big time college sports marketplace and its prevailing values. And in that book, Byers, he really turned on the basic value system that he himself helped to create 
including the propagandization of amateurism, the invention out of whole cloth of the student athlete. He said the student athlete was just a ruse to try to avoid workers' compensation liability. And as to amateurism, he said that that was nothing more than camouflage for monopoly practice. And then uh, this wasn't in the context of his book, but in a deposition in that white suit, that uh, cost of attendance scholarship suit that was filed in 2006. Byers had his deposition taken in 2007, and he came out and said under oath that to heck with the cost of attendance scholarship being an encroachment into professionalism. He said the whole athletic scholarship is pay for play. And that's the only intelligent way to look at that quid pro quo. So all three of those books, I think, are really important and a worthwhile read. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going back through that stuff here. And you can check out that episode 42 that I did after the SEC poached Texas and Oklahoma about a year ago. And I said in that episode 42 with this, the beginning of this new round of conference realignment, this is really the logical endpoint of Board of Regents and the big time powerful football interests freedom from the NCAA monopoly over televised football. And when you look at the evolution of the football interests post Board of Regents, there has really been this decades-long process of those interests finding their level in the market and consistent with new technology, but also how that product was going to be refined in, in terms of the, the most important market participants. And that's what's happening right now. A lot of people had predicted that there was going to be another shakeout at some point from the existing Power Five because there, there are 65 schools across those five conferences. And you have some schools in that product that really aren't that powerful from a football standpoint. And a lot of the insanity of the first round of conference realignment was really driven around the the fear of uh, getting left out. And it was all built around the aggregation of football power because that's the most important product uh, to sell to broadcast media outlets. But you had some conferences picking up schools for what they thought were market share purposes. For example, the Big Ten picked up Rutgers. Rutgers isn't in the Big Ten's footprint. They picked up Maryland. Maryland's not in the Big Ten's footprint. Why do you pick them up? Because with Rutgers, you get access to the New York market. With Maryland, you get access to the D.C. market. I think some of the same thinking was true to a lesser extent with the ACC. And I talked in episode 42 about the fundamental transformation of the ACC, not just in its footprint and the composition of the schools, but in the climate and culture of the conference, because it went from a a basketball-centric conference to a football-centric conference. And they picked up some schools. They raided the Big East, basically. You know, the, the Big East back then in the early 2000s was trying to run with the big dogs. And they were a basketball conference originally, and they were picking up football schools to try to stay relevant in this high stakes game of musical chairs and being in the big time football sweepstakes. And they thought they had positioned themselves to to be running with the big football powerhouses. And then the ACC just came in and raided the ever living hell out of the Big East and picked off a bunch of schools. And so they got Boston College, for example, which wasn't really a football powerhouse, but it had the Boston market. And then you get Syracuse and you get some of the New York market. You have a presence in New York, even though that's an upstate New York. But neither Syracuse nor Boston College wanted to join the ACC. I mean, there were some forced relationships here that I don't think have matured into harmony and unity under the first round of conference realignment. And this next 
wave of realignment, again, which is a logical endpoint of Board of Regents, is really going to be built around the top 40 schools in, in big-time football. And so there's going to be a shakeout, and it's possible that that shakeout could include some qualifying criteria for the big-time conferences, and this could be done through divisional requirements through this transformation committee. But having a group of schools in the bottom tier of the existing Power Five wanting to go somewhere else or not being forced out, essentially, of the, of the big-time football sweepstakes. And I don't think that would be a bad thing. I think that would be actually... A good thing. And, and I think you're going to see the really the top tier football schools thinking about kind of the bottom of the Power Five. The way that they thought about the NCAA's football contracts that it was doing from 1951 to 1981 when it had, had an absolute monopoly. And the, you had the NCAA rationing output. And they decided, and this is in the regular season, not just the postseason. This is the regular season. They decided who was going to appear on TV, and that was written into the contracts. And there was an attempt to try to spread the exposure around to different types of football products under the NCAA umbrella. So it wasn't just the Power Five all the time. And you had an effort to bring in smaller schools, smaller conferences, some other uh, divisional products. One of the motivating factors that led to the Board of Regents lawsuit that was filed in 1981 was that the big-time schools really had no control over the amount of exposure that they got. And it wasn't just about the money. That was important, and I think that was a primary driving force. But it was also about the exposure. And so one of the the things that came out of Board of Regents after the Supreme Court struck down the NCAA's monopoly over televised football was that the big products got bigger and the rich got richer. And I think when you look at the Power Five now, you have some of these lower level products that really aren't adding much value to the football product. Yet actually, because of the the scheduling issues, the big schools are stuck playing some of these lower level schools that the networks aren't that crazy about. They would much rather see an NFL style menu of teams and at a much higher level. So I I think what you're seeing now, and this is part of my uh, observation that this new round of realignment is a logical endpoint of Board of Regents, is that what the networks really want are these really high-powered football teams playing each other, and they love the intersectional games. It's like a bowl game during the regular season. If you get Ohio State and UCLA, or you get Alabama and Texas. And again, those footprints could change even more if there's more more schools that are going to be brought into the, the Big uh, Ten or the SEC. But that's gold for the networks. That's what they really want. And honestly, they don't want Alabama Vanderbilt. They don't want a Clemson Duke. They don't want Ohio State, and I don't know what the worst Big Ten schools, uh, Rutgers, I guess. They don't want Ohio State Rutgers. They want the big boys playing the big boys because that's where the eyeballs are going to be. That's where the fan engagement is going to grow, which means that's where the money is for some of these institutions. And I think there's really an important 
rate limiting step here, a rate limiting factor in this conference expansion. And that is that at some point, when you look at the expansion of the existing conferences, particularly the Big Ten and the SEC, it's going to dilute the, the payout to all the member institutions. So if you're looking not just at securing your footprint and, and your market share, but you want to make sure that you are maximizing the value at the institutional level, that each institution in these super conferences is maximizing the revenue from the new and breathtaking revenue streams, you have to give some serious consideration to making sure that you don't expand the conference in a way that has really weak products getting an equal share. And there are two ways to deal with that. One would be to change the allocation formula so that you have the teams that really aren't football powerhouses not getting as much money. Or the easier thing, honestly, would be just to get rid of some of that inventory. <laughs> so how do you do that? And I think when you look at what's going on in this uh, transformation committee and the potential new criteria for a divisional structure or an entirely new division, and, th and they've talked about that very obliquely. When you go through the uh, minutes of the transformation committee, that comes up uh, occasionally, but in a very muted way. And they're not really showing their hand there, but there's been enough discussion about it, in my judgment, to conclude that it's on the table. And they could, by quote-unquote objective standards like the attendance uh, that you get, your home attendance, the size of your stadium, the amount of money that you generate, the number of scholarships that you field. And I'm going to talk about that single factor in another episode because I think part of their push on the backside of the this new realignment and their re-engagement with Congress is going to be to try to expand for those top-tier schools, those that super conference schools, the the number of scholarships for non-revenue Olympic sport athletes and women's athletes is a selling point to get what they want in Congress. But, you know, they're looking at some new criteria here, I think, that could have the effect of essentially weeding out the bottom of these conferences. And we'll see what happens. But I think that's an important consideration and something to keep an eye on. And so what you're seeing is a consolidation of the market forces in big time college football. You see that in so many industries in America now. You see it with the media, and I think this influences the sports media as well. You see fewer and fewer market participants and more and more mega conglomerates. It's happening in in the tech world, and I would actually call that the, the big data world. Google's trying to fend off antitrust claims. So when you have, whenever you're consolidating your power and you are limiting market access to a smaller group of market participants, that obviously raises competition issues. And I've discussed in many episodes the antitrust implications of the way that big-time football has swung its weight around in the marketplace and in the governance process. And what we're seeing now is what may be the, the final consolidation and just lurking behind the aspirations of, of big time football are antitrust issues. And, and this goes back to the earliest iterations of the modern NCAA. And one of the ways that the NCAA gained its initial enforcement and infractions authority was to stare down the University of Pennsylvania and Notre Dame, who prior to the NCAA's monopoly over televised football had some very sophisticated television products. 
And Smith talks about that in his book, Play by Play. Donovan does as well. But Penn was uh, making some good money off of a TV contract. And at the same time, they were selling out Franklin Field in Philadelphia. Notre Dame had a really good product. The NCAA, when they took over the, the televised football market, they demanded that Penn and Notre Dame give up their football products. And as early as the early 1950s, the uh, University of Pennsylvania and, and Notre Dame were saying, wait a minute, you can't do that. There are obvious antitrust implications. And then Walter Byers pulled a Houdini and he got a vote of the membership to basically say they were going to blackball Notre Dame and Penn if they didn't uh, come on board and give up their football products, which is precisely what they did. But they had a very good antitrust argument. And, of course, then when the NCAA was monopolizing uh, the televised football market for 30 years, you had the Board of Regents decision, and the big-time powerful schools wanted to take the monopoly away from the NCAA, and they were successful in doing that. But what's really interesting and ironic is that on the backside of the Board of Regents decision, you had the College Football Association, which was really the organization that was the driving force behind Board of Regents. They weren't a named plaintiff. The named plaintiffs were the University of Georgia and the University of Oklahoma. But you had this organization that was set up to challenge the NCAA's monopoly over televised football. And the CFA on the backside of Board of Regents was entering into its own TV contracts. And it had powerful members. And then it wasn't long after the CFA CFAs entered into these contracts that you had other interests saying that the CFA was acting as a monopolist and the Justice Department was taking a look at that, the antitrust division of the Justice Department. So you then had this suggestion that we just had a transfer of the monopoly power from the NCAA to the, to the CFA. It's just part of this aggregation of power, this thirst for power and money that big-time football just can't resist, that has led to these uh, market inequities that always raise antitrust issues. Uh, the CFA, which was formed in 1977, disbanded in 1997, just 20 years, and it had members defecting, and it just died a quiet death. But after that, after the uh, end of the NCAA's uh, monopoly over televised football, then the death of the CFA, you started to see the football marketplace try to reorganize itself. That has been a, a long-term process, and, and I think that's so important to understand. And I've talked about that in the context of this name, image, and likeness market and any revenue-sharing market that might exist. It's going to take a while after the suppression of market forces for markets to work themselves out, and people have, are judging this nil market after a year, and we have very little data to show what that market actually looks like. But with big time football, it, it really started to reorganize itself after this Board of Regents CFA era and then into what would ultimately become the power five. And, and the big dogs have been trying to consolidate their power and to keep other potential competitors at bay. And that came to a head in the late 1990s in postseason football with the transition from the Bowl Alliance to the BCA. 
S, and you had hearings in Congress that I, I've talked quite a bit about as well. And this was a battle between the have and the haves and the have-nots. And the haves were what is now the Big Ten, the SEC, the ACC, the Pac-12, and the Big 12, versus what are now the, the group of five, the, this next tier of football interests that so desperately want to be in the Power Five tier and run with the big dogs. But they have been essentially excluded from the marketplace. So there were hearings in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, which has jurisdiction over antitrust issues. And there was all this rhetoric back and forth. The big time football interest said, yeah, we're going to try to throw these guys some bones in the postseason uh, market. And back then it was the bowl mar- big bowl market. The playoff didn't exist. And ironically, the instance of stakeholder beneficiaries like Jim Delaney, who was the commissioner of the Big Ten at the time, he said that a college football playoff would be the death of college football. It's the same scare tactics. But And then that issue resurrected itself again in 2000. And three, and you had the have-nots still making noise because they were saying, look, it's been, what, six years since we transitioned to this BCS. And six years ago, you promised us that we were going to have more opportunities to participate in a meaningful way in the big bowls in the postseason. And that hasn't happened. So we are demanding a seat at the table or we're going to sue you under antitrust laws. So you had another round of hearings in the Senate, and you heard the same song and dance from the big-time football interests telling the have-nots that, yeah, we'll, we'll try to make you happy. We'll throw you some table scraps, which, of course, they never did. And Congress was pretty clear, both in those 1997 hearings and in those 2003 hearings, that they saw the antitrust issues. They recognized that there were legitimate antitrust concerns in the way that the big-time football interests were dominating the postseason. But they wanted the parties to sit down at a table and work it out. They weren't very thrilled about the prospect of legislating in this area to force the haves to allow the have-nots to have a seat at the table. So you you had these antitrust issues still percolating through the uh, first wave of conference realignment and then into the formation of what is now the Power Five. And the other thing that's important to remember about that first wave of conference realignment is that it ended in about 2012, and you had these final pieces coming into place. You had the ACC picking up Louisville and losing Maryland to the Big Ten, and I think it was towards the end of that period that Rutgers was added to the Big Ten as well. And that year is important because it's also the year that the CFP was formed, the College Football Playoff, and this transition to a true playoff, which the the people who were responsible for for forming the CFP, those same people 15, 20 years before were saying that a college football playoff would be the death of college football. So (laughs) you have this new entity, this entirely new approach to postseason football and determining a true national champion. And what was interesting about the CFP from a structural standpoint, it was formed as a limited liability company. It was not an education nonprofit like a conference would be. It's a private business, for-profit business, and they operate entirely independent of the NCAA because of Board of Regents. But what they did, and I think this was a very smart thing, and this goes to this chronic antitrust concern that has plagued college football really going back to the early 1950s. But what they did with with the CFP was they brought the group of five into the CFP structure. They gave the have-nots a seat at the table. And I think that was done in large measure to try to mitigate 
the antitrust consequences of a CFP with only the Power Five. And so they, they have a, technically they have a seat at the table, but they're at the kids' table still because in the revenue distribution formula, the Power Five get about 80% of the multi-billion dollar contract through ESPN. And the group of five and some other interests get uh, 20% and some change, I think. So the Power Five are having their cake and eating it too, as they always have. And they have this juggernaut presence where they have unified some of the historical rifts that that existed regionally. And I talked about those in that episode 42 and then the episodes on the prisoner's dilemma because you had this historical rift between the Big Ten and the, what I'm going to call the Pac-12 on the one hand and then the Southern Conferences on the other. And that was, Walter Byers described that as a Hatfield and McCoy's type dynamic. That really existed through a large part of the evolution of the football interest into the Power Five. And that's one reason why I think the Big Ten turning on the Pac-12 is significant because I think it signals an end to any regional affiliations, loyalties, or alliance and the Big Ten was in this alliance with the Pac-12 and the ACC, which was an alliance with no purpose. And I think it was really just to try to fend off the SEC because the SEC is the maverick. And, and that was really the theme of that episode 42, that it's always Southern football that's activating the market. And they pressed the envelope, challenging the NCAA's uh, monopoly over televised football. The Big Ten and the Pac-12 refused to join that lawsuit. And it was just open hostility there that Walter Byers uh, talked about quite a bit in, in his 1995 book. But I think that that softened a little bit as the Power Five came into existence. And it is over now. The Big Ten just stabbed the Pac-12 in the back, and there is no, there's no recovering from that in terms of any sense of allegiance or collegiality and all this happy malarkey that these educators like to talk about and, and the university presidents like to talk about. But what's happening right now, I think, puts a new face on the the status quo that existed with the Power Five and the CFP and placating the have-nots. Because I think with this new conference structure and the possibility that one or two conferences could cease to exist in their current name and structure, you have a, a whole different set of have-nots potentially. And it'll be interesting to see what happens here. And again, I'm going to resist the temptation to speculate on, on what the final products are going to look like, but we'll know soon enough. But this round of realignment upsets this carefully calibrated status quo that existed for the Power Five relative to the Group of Five and through the CFP. And all these issues are interrelated. So in these discussions about conference realignment, you know, it's going to have implications for the CFP. It's going to have implications for potentially a new class of have-nots in this historical battle between the haves and the have-nots. And it has really, I think, destroyed any of the regional alliances that existed out of uh, Board of Regents and were uh, reconciled at some level through the formation of the Power Five and then the CFP. So I, w- I want to talk a little bit about what I see as some of the implications of this pickoff, the Big Ten's pickoff of UCLA and USC and the potential for more realignment moves. And one is that obviously we're going to have a smaller market of the haves. And, and that again is going to generate, I think, some antitrust 
scrutiny. And as I mentioned earlier, this history of cooperation between the Pac-12 and the Big Ten is dead. And of course, we also have the death of any respect for regional boundaries and, and the traditional standards for conference membership and affiliation. This is a wide open national market now. And at the values level, you don't have anyone in system even uh, going through the motions of trying to defend what's happening through the lens of the values of higher education. And I think another important byproduct of, of what's happening right now is that the two most powerful conferences are going toe-to-toe. This really goes to what I think might be some behind-the-scenes power struggles on the regulatory model. And when you look honestly at what's happened through this constitutional makeover and then the formation of this transformation committee and its leadership, this is an SEC show, and the SEC has been having its way really since 2019, and you've had this changeover in conference commissioner leadership at the Big Ten in the Pac-12 and the ACC. You have a whole new cast of conference commissioners. Then you had you had Greg Sankey in the driver's seat of the SEC. Early on, he was running circles around those guys. And I think that was one of the motivating forces behind this alliance, <laughs> the alliance that had no purpose with the Big Ten, Pac-12, and ACC. And I think you could reasonably view that alliance as an insurance policy policy against the SEC's imperial instincts. So you, you have this movement at the voluntary regulation of college sports that is being driven primarily by Southern football, by the SEC. I was wondering, wh- when is the Big Ten going to stand up here and say, wait a minute, we swing a pretty big hammer too? In episode 42, I ranked the conferences in terms of stability and then revenue, and the SEC and the Big Ten are just light years ahead of the rest of college football. So the, the Big Ten has finally stepped into the ring, and they can go toe-to-toe with the SEC. I don't know what the consequence is going to be with this transformation committee, and I'm going to do some work on this transformation committee and talk about what has come out from it, because we're coming up close on the August deadline they set to come up with recommendations and some proposals that they can implement. And I have been following the transformation committee, and and there's some interesting stuff going on in my judgment, but I'm I'm going to keep my powder dry on that until I do a separate episode or two on it. But if you were sitting in the captain's chair in the transformation committee like Greg Sankey is, and you're pretty much having your way in terms of what the divisional requirements are going to be for uh, high-level Division One membership and perhaps the formation of a, an entirely new division for this upper tier of football, you may have a, a different view of it now that the Big Ten has stepped into the ring and they just uh, landed a, a hell of a, a haymaker. So I I think that that this is going to be a challenge to what has been happening through this constitutional makeover and this transformation committee. One of the things I I pointed out when I went through the roster of this transformation committee back, let's see, it was probably in November of 2021. I think the transformation committee was formed in late October. That's a Division I uh, board of directors committee. It is Division I only. It's not an association-wide committee. But when I was going through the membership, I pointed out that when you looked at the conference representation, 
the Big Ten didn't really have any power players. They had an athletics director and then I think a faculty athletics representative. And I believe the athletics director was from Maryland, a new member kind of outside of the footprint and the climate and culture of the Big Ten. And then a, a faculty athletics representative is going to have very little influence on that committee. And you had the SEC conference commissioner heading up the whole shooting match. And then you had some other powerful SEC people. In looking at the balance of power there, the Big Ten kind of got marginalized. And the Big Ten's now swinging back. And this isn't uh, Apollo Creed and Rocky. This is Ali and Frazier. You know, you got, you got the two titans going at this thing now. I think that changes the complexion of the voluntary regulatory issues. And I think it is also going to change the complexion of how the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries organize themselves in their campaign in Congress, and I would say to a lesser extent in their litigation strategies. And, and, and I want to turn to that now for a second. I want to start with the general proposition that since the formation of the Power Five in 20. 12. There has been some disagreement on some minor issues among and between the Power Five, and there has been some tension between the Power Five and the NCAA. But they have been unified in their litigation campaigns and in their congressional campaign because they all want the same thing. They all want to eliminate any external regulatory threats to the business model and more importantly the financial market so they want federal courts taken completely off the table through an antitrust immunity they tried to get that judicially through austin they failed they're now going to try to get it through congress and as i'm going to discuss in a little bit that's going to be an important piece of the puzzle going forward for them and then they also want to eliminate state legislatures as potential external regulatory threats by getting preemption power that would just with a stroke of a pen, take any state law regulation that has anything to do with college sports completely off the books. And then the third thing, and that's so important right now that they that has gotten virtually no discussion in, in the media, is that the NCAA and Power Five want a declaration either from a federal court or an administrative agency. So we have the Johnson suit that's uh, trying to get employee status for athletes under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Then you've got these pathways to collective bargaining with the National Labor Relations board. But you also have the NCAA and, and Power Five, more importantly, building the case in Congress for a provision that athletes simply can't be employees. And provisions like that exist in a number of the Republican-sponsored NCAA-friendly bills that came out in 2020 and 2021. I think that commitment to those issues is going to remain in place regardless of how ugly conference realignment gets. I think it could make it more difficult. If there are a critical mass of schools that wind up in the have-not category that are power players, like with the Pac-12, people are looking at Oregon. Oregon's a really good product. It's got to land somewhere where its value can contribute to a conference product. I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's enough to carry the Pac-12 or what's left of it. But Washington has been part of that discussion. And Washington, from a political standpoint, is a really, important uh, state in the Senate because you have Maria Cantwell as one of its senators. You also have Patty Murray, both Democrats. But Maria Cantwell is chair of the Commerce Committee in the Senate, and the, that committee has original jurisdiction over sports matters. So if you alienate Washington, if, you know, if Washington doesn't get a seat when the music stops playing and isn't treated well, does that impact how Maria Cantwell looks at a request from the big dogs for protective federal legislation? I don't know. 
could be. But when you go back to 1997, the alliances that broke down in this have-have-nots weren't based on politics necessarily. And you had Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, a senator from Kentucky, a Republican, taking to the microphone as a witness to make the case for the have-nots. He was taking a position that was hostile to the big-time powerful football interests. So the political landscape can change dramatically when you view it through the lens of the haves and the have-nots rather than a partisan political lens. And, you know, that was the case for Mitch McConnell in 1997. In fact, it was the interest of a particular university that drove his thinking on the antitrust issues. And McConnell was a Louisville graduate. He went to Louisville for undergraduate school. And then he went to Kentucky for law school. But it's important to understand that in 1997, when these hearings occurred, Louisville was in the have-not category. I can't remember what conference they were in. It might have been Conference USA. But uh, McConnell was there to advocate on behalf of Louisville against the big-time powerful football interests. And the same was true with senators from Utah. You had Senator Bennett. I can't remember his first name. Then, of course, you have Orrin Hatch, who was actually chair of the Judiciary Committee. And they were taking the same position as uh, McConnell, and both of them are Republicans. So they were saying, look, our product's here. And they they had uh, Utah and BYU that were in the have-not category then. Uh, Later, Utah would be brought into the Pac-12, and of course, uh, Louisville later came into the ACC. But this broke down along have-have-nots, and when you look at how the congressional campaign has played out in 2019 to the present, it's broken down almost exclusively along political lines, partisan political lines, and it's a Republican-Democrat dynamic. If you're a Republican, you're for the NCAA Power Five. If you're a Democrat, you place the athletes' interests first. That simply wasn't the case in 1997, and you had some of the most powerful Republican senators in the United States Senate taking to the microphones to advocate on behalf of the have-nots. And I I guess I should note that I, I did an episode, episode 96, titled The World According to the Power Five Football Elite. And I talk about all these dynamics through the lens of this 1997 hearing. And the opening montage to that episode, I think, is really instructive. Even if you don't want to listen to the whole episode, uh, you might want to go back and listen to that opening montage. It's a long one from episode 96. But a couple of other things that came up at that hearing that I think are really important is that the the chair of that subcommittee uh, of judiciary, then Ohio Republican Senator Mike DeWine, he invited but didn't subpoena. He he noted when he introduced the hearings that he could have subpoenaed these people, but he invited the ABC network to come and testify because at the time ABC controlled 70% of the postseason football television market. And of course, ABC purchased ESPN and then Disney purchased ABC. But you had this monopolized postseason football market. And that was on the table at these hearings as well. And he also invited representatives from the major bowl games. None of those people showed up. They just uh, took a pass. They didn't want to be cross-examined on the extent of their control over the postseason televised football market. And the other thing I think that's important to note, and and this is contained in uh, one of the quotes from the montage in that episode 96, is that this was a long day of hearings. There were three panels and a total of, I think, 15, maybe 16 witnesses that testified. Not a single university president showed up to make the case for why they were in the entertainment industry. And now the dominant market actor with postseason football 
And actually, regular season football is ESPN. And rather than being called to testify before Congress, they are the go-to media outlet where the consumers go for quote-unquote news on what's happening with this conference realignment and the new marketplace that's going to exist with these super conferences, which means, of course, that you have the producer of the entertainment product, the college football entertainment product, also acting as the media that's covering it. How convenient. But I think the important takeaway from those 1997 hearings in terms of what may happen in Congress is that these loyalties can change on a dime. I think that it's important not to lose sight of that as we look at how the new conference structure, whatever it looks like, is going to reposition itself in Congress. And then in litigation and these administrative pathways, I think you're going to see the same thing. You know, the NCAA is the big target in, in both this Johnson suit and then the, the House suit on the West Coast that is a name, image, and likeness suit. And then we have these charges with the National Labor Relations Board to try to get athletes recognized as employees for purposes of the National Labor Relations Act, which would then entitle them to collective bargaining. And that employee issue, as I've I've said before, that's the hill that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, uh, the Power Five and the NCAA, are willing to die on. They'll defend it and they'll die on it. And I don't see that changing. And, And that brings me to what this new world order looks like and some of the things that need to be on the table going forward because this is new. I think that when the Big Ten steps into the ring with the SEC and you see this kind of movement, I think that what the final product looks like is going to make a difference in terms of the relationship between those new super conferences and the athletes in the revenue producing sports. It has to. I think there's no propaganda sleight of hand that those new super conferences can use to try to make this look like an amateur product. This isn't NFL product, and it's purposely an NFL product, yet the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, uh, they want the value of the NFL product. They just don't want to pay the labor, and they're going to do everything in their power to keep that basic structure in place, and I'm going to uh, keep my powder dry on what I think that may look like, because I think that there's a possibility for collective bargaining light, which would not give the athletes employee status or rights under the NLRA to, to collectively bargain and then use the protections of that law to force these super conference members to treat them fairly. But they're going to go with something less than that. That kind of thinking has been on the table. And in that symposium with the Drake group and the discussion that was supposed to be about unionization. You heard Michael Hausfeld, who was the athlete's attorney in O'Bannon, make the case for something less than collective bargaining. Yes, the athletes need a seat at the table, but they don't need to be employees and they don't need formal collective bargaining and, and recognized as a union group under the NLR. And then, of course, there are some other commentators who have come up with proposals. I've heard this from Greg Sankey, actually, that and, and Bubba Cunningham, a local AD, has made some comments like this, that there, there could be some kind of uh, collective bargaining. But you can bet your bottom dollar that whatever that looks like, it's going to be an illusion. They want to create the illusion that the athletes are going to have a seat at the table, but they sure as hell don't want them to be employees, and they don't want them to have the rights available to them under the National Labor Relations Act and, and through collective bargaining, meaningful enforceable collective bargaining. And this FLSA case really has nothing to do with those issues. It's just a a payment law. I don't think it really is going to do a a lot for the revenue producing athletes in these new super conferences. But but I think it's fair to point out that in this new world order under uh, realignment 2.0, 
Oh, the big time football interests are moving very clearly towards an NFL product and the media contracts are going to reflect uh, that value. You're going to have some discussion about what the relationship with the labor force is going to be. So with new super conferences and this NFL product, the new conferences, uh, to a lesser extent, the NCAA, because these, these conferences are still operating under the NCAA umbrella, they have to think about the antitrust issues, and they operate in, in two ways, really, now. One is with respect to broadcast media contracts, and if they these new super conferences are basically dominating the market, the football market, you could have some concerns about these contracts. That was raised in 1997 in these hearings in the Senate, and part of the scrutiny there, the antitrust scrutiny, was the effect of the, these networks that have dominant market control over the televised uh, football market in college football. So th- that's another concern. The NFL has antitrust protection on two levels. It, it has protection with respect to the media contracts to the 1961 Sports Broadcasting Act which provides it an antitrust immunity for those contracts. And there was some criticism of Walter Byers after that law was enacted that the NCAA didn't jump in and try to get that same exclusion, but Byers didn't think it was necessary at the time. Some people look back and think that was a huge mistake. The other antitrust immunity that the NFL needs, of course, is with the labor force, and they get that through collective bargaining, through the rights and protections of formal collective bargaining under the National Labor Relations Act. And if you're engaging in collective bargaining under that law, you get the benefit of a non-statutory antitrust immunity. So the logic there, I think, is that if everybody's at the table, they have equal bargaining power and they have essentially agreed to a contract that defines the the terms of the labor, then you can't come back and and say that the owners, for example, are engaging in anti-competitive behavior because you're party to the contract and you have the ability to negotiate the terms. So people are talking about antitrust issues in college sports in terms of the threat that they pose to the business model. But nobody's talking about the fact that if the Power Five or these new super conferences sit down and engage in formal collective bargaining under the National Labor Relations Act, they solve their antitrust issue with the labor force. And I think they could make a a credible case then for uh, protection under the Sports Broadcasting Act or through some other piece of legislation. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think they're still clinging to, to the amateurism arguments, and they're sure as hell doing that in this Johnson case and they're doing it in house and they're they're responding to these administrative pathways with the same arguments. So they haven't laid down their arms on that. And it'll be interesting to see as these new super conferences take shape, uh, how they reposition themselves with Congress, because I could see them asking for all the protections that they would get if they were under the Sports Broadcasting Act or under formal collective bargaining in terms of antitrust immunity, but do it under a separate law which uh, doesn't grant employee status to these athletes, doesn't allow them to have enforceable rights under the NLRA, and then it's collective bargaining light, and the athletes wind up with the appearance of a remedy and a seat at the table, but as has been the case from the very beginning of the modern era of college sports They never have a meaningful voice 
or a meaningful seat at the table. And that's going to bring me to something I want to close this episode out with. And that is when these stories started uh, surfacing about USC and UCLA leaving the Pac-12, you had all these people in the commentariat just going hog wild with stories and speculation and what does it mean and how did it happen and and all the things that sell advertising on the internet and, and in print media. But I haven't seen anyone talk about this through the lens of the athletes that are affected here. And if you're a UCLA or a USC athlete, did you have a voice in this? Did anybody come to you and say, do, do you athletes, this is probably five, 600 athletes at each of those schools, did the institutions call a meeting and sit down with the athletes and say, look, this is where this is headed. We, we want to do this, but we also want to know what you think. What do you think? And that, uh, that didn't happen. This was all done in backroom discussions and uh, top secret discussions because they don't want this thing to get out. They just want to spring it after it's a done deal. But it really makes a mockery of the athlete voice because this decision is consequential for these athletes on two levels. One, a lot of athletes choose a school based on the conference affiliation, the location, and the rivalries and all that stuff. And I'm just thinking back to my experience. I, I played basketball at Duke on Coach K's early teams in the early 1980s. And I'm just imagining what it would be like if uh, Duke was courted by another conference. The decision was made under the cover of darkness. And we joined the SEC. And instead of playing UNC and NC State and Wake Forest and, and, and Maryland and Clemson and, and Georgia Tech in conference play, we're playing an SEC schedule. A lot of players that come to Duke University, they come because they want to be part of the magic of the tobacco road experience and particularly that Duke UNC rivalry and if Duke University made that decision unilaterally without input from the athletes, there would be a firestorm. And this, I think you could have some of the same issues here, but we're not hearing from the athletes. We don't know what they really think. And it doesn't seem like the institutions or the conferences really give a damn about what they think. They didn't have a say. You know, if these issues were on the radar screen and these backdoor secret discussions, it's not apparent from the way they've been covered. And I'm guessing they were, were not on the radar screen in these closed door meetings. And of course, we'll never know. We'll never know. But I think what's happening now from a timing standpoint is a bit of a problem for the the big time football interests because this needs to work itself out. I, th- I think when they re-engage with Congress and remember we're, they're counting on a uh, Republican controlled Congress and it looks increasingly like that's going to happen in the House and the Senate is still in play. But if they get both chambers, the Republicans get both chambers, the NCAA and the Power Five are right back in the driver's seat. But I don't think it helps their cause if there is infighting among what was the old Power Five and you have this game of musical chairs going on and you have some schools that are fearful that they're not going to have a seat when the music stops playing. That's not the environment you want to have when you're going back to ask for sweeping federal protections through the marketplace of big time college sports. So it'll be interesting to see how this all settles out here and and things can happen quickly and this this UCLA-USC defection came out of the blue and 
I don't think there's any evidence that George Klafkoff, who's the Pac-12 Conference Commissioner, had any idea what was going on, just as Bob Bowlesby, former commissioner of the Big 12, didn't have any idea what was going on when the SEC picked off Texas and Oklahoma. And then the other thing that's just really distressing about this decision and the absence of input from the athletes is that this unique situation where you have these products that are outside of the geographical footprint of their new conference, as far outside of that footprint as you could possibly be in the continental United States, these athletes are going to be put into a in-season lifestyle. It's almost unimaginable, really. When you play a big-time college sport at a Power Five-type university, because of the traditional regional affiliations that, that really are the lifeblood of the conferences, you may occasionally have a an intersectional game where you fly out. But, you know, when I was playing, that was, you know, we'd try to do that around holidays or in breaks in the schedule to try to minimize the impact on our academic schedule. That's not even a consideration now. But with this type of travel from the West Coast to the Midwest and, and even to New Jersey with Rutgers, you have a much different type of travel and it's going to require a much different type of planning and scheduling. And these athletes are simply going to be gone more than they were before. And they're going to be gone a lot. And that's not just going to impact their uh, their schoolwork or the schoolwork that, that, that they have to do day in, day out, week in, week out. It's going to mean that they're away from class more than they've ever been before. And it may change the kind of majors that they can have and the the courses that they can select. And that's consequential for these athletes. And that's not just going to be true for the football and men's basketball players. That's going to be true for every athlete at USC and UCLA. This is a massive, massive impact on these athletes. And then the other thing I think that has to be on the radar screen here is the mental toll that this kind of scheduling is going to take. And the disruption in the academic work and, and more importantly, in the lives that these athletes have built at their home institutions and the connections that they've made and the support systems that they have. They are going to be like a traveling Broadway show. That's going to be the lifestyle that these athletes had. What, what, what impact is that going to have on their mental health? And the NCAA and the Power Five and all these committees and all the propaganda that comes out of the NCAA website and the garbage they've served up to Congress is built around health and safety and with an emphasis on mental health. They don't give a damn about mental health if they permit this kind of extraordinary burden on the athletes. And it's going to take a toll. There's no doubt about it. And even athletes who are really committed students who have really worked on time management skills are going to be challenged here. I mean, this is just not a, a normal environment for college athletes and points out so clearly that there is no one, and I mean no one, in the system at these universities, at these conferences, at the NCAA, all these committees, no one who is standing up for the rights of these athletes that are being treated like pawns by their institutions and their conferences in this insatiable desire to acquire uh, better branding, better marketing, more power, more prestige, and more importantly, more money. All right. So with that, I'm going to close this episode out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.